What's up, friends and family? It's time for another episode of Hype is My Superpower. I'm one of your hosts, Steve Storman, in Brooklyn, New York, along with my cat chewing my microphone cord here. And (laughs) (laughs) joining me via the miracles of modern technology with the Millennium Falcon in the background, it's my good buddy, Will Freeland. Will, what's good, man? What's up? Chilling, nice and relaxing. It's been a big week for my Twitch. I've been having a lot of fun awesome. doing that. I'm bummed I didn't make any of the streams this week. Uh, I'm gonna looking forward to one tonight and Wednesday as well. Yeah, dude. So after tonight, I think I'll make affiliate, which is super fun. Awesome. Which means I can have like subscribers and emotes and stuff. So cool. I've been reaching out and hiring all kinds of independent artists to do some artwork for the channel. So like I've just been knee deep in Twitch stuff for this week. Sweet. It's also been it's also been really busy at work. I've been working super late and uh-huh. not sleeping in. Uh, you don't sleep anyway, though. <laughs> I don't. But it's usually <laughs> because I'm playing video games or something. <laughs> <laughs> not sleeping because of work is has a real different feel yeah. soul. <laughs> it really hits you different <laughs> but yeah overall the week has been great i've been having a good time awesome awesome glad to hear it yeah i started playing a video game actually as you know is quite rare for me to to yeah. jump into a game again it's been really nice i'm playing psychonauts too <gasps> cool yeah did you play the first one loved the first one yeah yeah, I, I never, I never ended up playing, but uh, I know that the world loves Psychonauts. Which <laughs> is one of the one of those, um, you know, one of the very few people who actually bought it on <laughs> on PlayStation Two. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was absolute great game. A lot in common with Nomon in terms of jumping into people's brains, all right, and kind of figuring out what makes them tick while you're in there, but done in a very different way and it makes me realize that really the thing that is most incredible about psychonauts is the art and level design Mm -hmm. and the way that it can make the same game feel completely different from level to level based on whose brain you're inside as it kind of takes on an entirely new like completely new aesthetic Mm. in different levels and different people's brains and it's phenomenal. Just tons of great writing, great dialogue. It, it's a fun game also. Like the gameplay is good, but that's almost secondary to the fact that it's just a place that you want to be in and hang out in and explore because it always rewards like looking at something new or listening to something new. It's just, yeah, I love it. Cool. Yeah. Shall we get into some comics? What'd you read this week? Yeah, this week was interesting. I think it felt like the end of a of a chapter on on one part so really i'll be going into that yeah huh i guess you're you're kind of like on the the downswing from empire age of Kanshu, like some some yeah. and and uh and outlawed so big things you're kind of you have in the rear view right now and you can kind of gear towards the next season in in marvel yeah pretty much so i read zadarsky's daredevil volume five Called Truth or Dare. Yeah. I read Captain America by Tanahasi Coates. Yeah. This is volume four. And this is the one that I feel like Coates is putting in a lot of effort to make Captain America more racially sensitive, hmm. for lack of a better phrase. Sure. Cause like when we first started the pod, 
I think the like fourth episode, I had read volume three where we find out about the Daughters of Liberty and yeah. Harry Tubman was a Daughter of Liberty. <laughs> right. And didn't <laughs> and stop, kind of you know, colonialism with her superpowers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was also kind of racial tensions in America was like on a new high again. And I'd been struggling with how I felt about someone named Captain America and how they would interact with racially sensitive topics. Yeah. So Coates actually used, it wasn't an annual, but the last issue in this volume, he kind of like kind of dives into that and what Captain America stands for. So cool. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then I had the absolute pleasure of reading Swordmaster Volume Two. Hey, I'm doing every. I'm very. I'm I'm a very animated person, and so usually you're supposed to read my body language about my sarcasm. So I'm doing everything I can to put all of my sarcasm in my voice. But oh my lord, <laughs> Swordmaster Volume Two was a thing that happened. <laughs> Okay. Had to read it. It was, it's, ah. Forgive me for being extremely excited to, to, (laughs) for that one. And then I started Eternals to Defy the Apocalypse. It's older. It's set back when Tony Stark is the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. And S.H.I.E.L.D. still exists in that, like, time frame. Okay. And so... Basically, the collection got re-released because Eternals is coming out. Yeah. And I didn't read it the first time, and it came out in the early 2000s, which which is in the realm of comics that I want to read anyway. Right. So that's why I, quote-unquote, justified picking up an older comic. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, so that's what I read. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Uh, Should we just hop into it? Yeah, uh, just for for the preview here. Yeah, yeah. Like I said last week, I read three chapters, or I finished chapter seven of Nomon and two more short ones. So there we go. I'm really interested to see how they quote unquote justify two really short chapters back to back. When in reference, the last time we had a super short chapter was just like a scene transition. It was a Neith chapter, which are, yeah, have been much shorter than. Yeah, the, from, from like memory to memory. Than the Sans Serif chapters. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to see how they do two back-to-back. Anyway, yeah, okay. So Daredevil Volume 5. Yes. This is the first one I read. I had started it last week, and I didn't get to finish it before we recorded, and it was going to be long anyway, so I <laughs> left it for here. Yeah. So if you will remember, the 21st night of September, but also... <laughs> <laughs> it's coming up. Four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> oh my god! Will have already days. happened by the time our by listeners the time people hear this. Listen to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if they also remember. yeah remember that that twenty first <laughs> of December just happened. <laughs> <laughs> so in volume four, there was there was the, uh, mercenaries got hired to go and destroy Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. And it's all basically part of the Stormwind's plan to extremely gentrify Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. They want to, you know, lower the value, buy it all up, tear everything down, put mm-hmm. up new stuff, mm-hmm. pay paradise, put up a parking lot kind of thing. So, bop, bop, bop. <laughs> I'm just doing all the references. You're just queuing me right up. <laughs> um, and and it ended with like Wilson Fisk as the mayor going and defending Hell's Kitchen next to a Matt Murdock who has realized his calling that Daredevil is bigger than just him. Mm-hmm. He's taken up the mantle of being Daredevil again. 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, we go into this. He volunteers to be arrested. Detective Cole is like, um, no, this is this man is a hero, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I know, but let me answer for my crimes. I killed mm-hmm. somebody. I should deal with this. So it kind of revolves around dealing with all of that to a degree. What, are we, what do I have written down here? Da-da-da. So yeah, Matt turns himself in for murder. That was the first issue. And then the next issue, they snuck in the annual. Okay. And in the annual, are you fa- <laughs> are you familiar with a character named Mike Murdoch? No. Any relation? <laughs> Is he his loser uncle or something? This is as related as it gets. All right. So is it another clone? No. Well, <laughs> nah, but <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So way back when, to disprove the theory that Matt was Daredevil, he went around and pretended to be his twin brother, Mike. And his twin brother, Mike, has sight, so he doesn't wear glasses. He's like a showboat, big energy type guy. Okay, so we (laughs) get that. So Mike Murdoch is his imaginary twin brother. Okay, so real. Do you ever see the movie adaptation? No, never mind then. Nicholas Cage, <laughs> Nicholas Cage plays the screenwriter of the movie that he's in, and also the screenwriter's imaginary twin brother. It's one of oh, my favorite well, movies yeah. of all time. <laughs> really, it's phenomenal. It's so good. Well, then, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll have to um, <laughs> put it on the list. Yeah, it's not what you expect when you hear the word. The name Nicholas Cage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so Mike Murdoch is a fiction that Matt created. Okay. Comics happened. And, of course. And through some magic, I think. Always fucking magic. They created Mike Murdoch. It's genetically probably a clone, but he has no memory. But he is an actual character now, separate from Matt. He has sight also. <laughs> but he, he looks exactly like Matt, but his name is Mike, and he's not blind. And he is a member of the general populace of New York. Okay, cool. Is he one of the fake daredevils running around Hell's Kitchen? No. Okay, because that would be that would be interesting. Like, if you're a genetic clone of Matt Murdock... You, you maybe you'd be compelled to, you know, you got a bunch of daredevils running around. Yeah. He's one of them, maybe. <laughs> so because he now exists, but he hasn't had any real screen time, they use sure. the annual to kind of explore what he's been doing, what his history is. Okay. He teams up with the hood to... Interesting. Is this this post de-hooding the hood? No, this is pre, Before that. Okay, okay. Pre-free okay. fall. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, because this... Because this is part of his past. So, like, we're oh, finding out. Oh, okay. But this is also, like, a few weeks ago. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's all over the place. Yeah, but yeah. The point is, he did a heist with the hood so he could find the, the combination to the lock that the hood had on a safe that houses this thing called a Nornstone. Okay. And for those who like don't familiar know. I familiar with that. So yeah, so Nornstones were a big player in the Siege crossover. Oh. And that was that was the first well in my reading, that was the first time they've really gotten the spotlight. But basically Nornstones are 
uh, Norse rocks of power. <laughs> they imbue magical abilities, give you strength, yada, yada. They're kind of like wish granters. Like infinity stones, but finite. Much, yeah, much more <laughs> finite. But they're just rocks. They, they don't yeah. have like the infinity stone of the Norn stone of time, the Norn stone you of sure. power. Like, yeah, yeah. It's just powered stones. Anyway, so he okay. has one. Uh, Hood has one. And so Mike does a heist with the hood so he can figure out the combination so he can go and break in and steal the Nornstone. And then he <laughs> hires he hires Black Cat mm-hmm. to steal basically a Necronomicon type book. Oh. He uses the Nornstone and some spells in his apartment to kind of create his history huh. that like establishes him, establishes his like his childhood growing up with Matt. Huh. Yeah, and so he created this history where he is a delinquent. He was like the crafty clown to Matt's studious rigidness. Yeah. So while Matt goes off to ch- to college, Mike is like doing like parlor tricks on the street kind of a thing. Interesting. Okay. So Matt comes back into town, goes and finds Mike, and they go and watch their dad. Uh, battling Jack Murdoch on his championship fight that sure. he is supposed to throw, but he doesn't, yada, yada, yada. Right, right, right. Okay. And so they both see him die, and that's kind of the end of that, because from then on, we know the path that Matt took. We basically just needed to see these scenes of Mike having a history now. Interesting. Yeah. So he used the Nornstones to give himself a history, and what I don't know is if he has rewritten 616 to be part of the world or if it was like a Kobe Steve Rogers thing where it only rewrote his personal history, but no one else remembers it. Right. And also where the heck are they going with this? Right. And that's, and that's a big question at the end of the annual. So at the end of the annual, Mike is in training at Fogwell's ring. Daredevil shows up and Mike is like, aren't you wanted for murder? And Daredevil's like, it's manslaughter, but the trial hasn't started yet. I just want to check in <laughs> on you. I heard you were doing some crazy shit. When I go to jail, yeah. like, no one's going to be here to protect you. I know you stole from the hood. I know this, that, and the other thing. And he's like, don't worry about me. Leave me alone. I didn't huh. need your help before. I don't need your help now. So Mike doesn't know that Matt and Murdoch and, and Daredevil are the same thing or same person oh. because last time his identity got released, since then he used the purple children <laughs> to rewrite the memory of the world, Good uh, including his comics. ex-girlfriend, including Mike. So <laughs> Good old comics. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he's like, I can't believe you didn't even hire my brother to represent you. Like, I know you guys have a lot of history. What the hell's your problem? He's yeah. like, it's not about that. And then anyway, so it ends with Mike getting a drink with his old buddy, Butch. And Butch is like, where the hell have you been, man? He's like, I was, <laughs> you know, around doing my thing, blah, blah, blah. And so they toast to each other and they toast to the future. They toast to whatever big plan they have because Butch is Kingpin's son. And they're like, yep, to the fall of whatever or or something. Uh-huh. And yeah. And so you're just kind of like, wait, what, where are you guys going with this? Where? Yeah. It's so strange. The last lines are, my, are, are Butch saying, my feelings about my dad aren't that complicated. Here's to you and me taking what's rightfully ours, taking what used to be my dad's. Here's to Wilson Fisk. Huh. And then they cheers and there's like, 
your typical like plotting wall of post-it notes and a map. <laughs> Always got to have the crazy post wall post-it notes. Yep. Red string connecting things. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this one doesn't have strings yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. They're getting there. Yeah. But that's the last page of the annual. So Mike and Butch fake pretend twin brother and the son of the kingpin have some sort of plot going on. Weird. Don't know what okay. it is. Cool. Yeah. I know, right? So the next three issues are leading up to the trial. Okay. And you have Daredevil trying to like cross some T's that to make sure that Hell's Kitchen is protected while he's in jail. Sure. His first idea is to go to Tony Stark. He's like, Tony, here's 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 the thing. The storm yeah. winds are buying out Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. They want to destroy it. I want, and he's like, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I've dealt with the storms before. They're they're bad uh-huh. people. Daredevil's like, so I want you to outbid them. <laughs> and Tony's like, wait, you want me? You want me to just like throw away millions and, or billions? And yeah, Daredevil's like, I want you to save lives. So what I want you to do, I want you to buy Hell's Kitchen, and then when I come back and deal with the Stormwinds and they're gone, oh, I want you to rent super cheap, and then uh-huh. I want you. You once I deal with the Stormwinds, I want you to sell to the renters super cheap. Hell yeah. So yes, I want you to lose a shit ton of money, but I want you to save people. To my mind, that really is the only way to like combat gentrification. Yeah. <laughs> is to yeah, just basically. like make somebody lose a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and Tony's like, you're ridiculous. And he's like, you know, I'm a good guy, right? I, I save lives. Yeah. And Daredevil's like, you are. I get that. But like you save the world. You save yeah. the planet. The planet needs people to live on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's interesting because Tony, when he first came up to him, he called him street level, like a street level hero. Yeah. And Daredevil was like, you called me street level before, but I prefer the term people level. Mm. And Tony's like, damn it. <laughs> so Awesome. And that blew my mind because I use the term street level all the time. Yeah. It's a common term. Yeah. We talk about Daredevil, Heroes for Hire, like Spider-Man. Everyone yeah. involved with Shadowlands, the crossover, basically. <laughs> They're street level. Misty Knight, the Daughters of the Dragon, yada, yada. Anyway, yeah. Tony's like, let me think about it. Probably. Cool. And Daredevil's like, fine with me. I'm down to plead guilty as long as I know Hell's Kitchen is taken care of. Yeah. There's another scene where Fisk meets with the gang heads and he's like, I understand that I was being a mayor, but you guys clearly cannot handle not having leadership. Oh, this is ridiculous. And he shows a, a feat of dominance by Hammerhead was giving him lip because the crime queen that he deals with, I forget her name. Her son was killed in the raids. But anyway, she's she's a crime boss. Okay. She shot Hammerhead in the face, uh-huh. but his his metal plate in his skull saved him. And <laughs> Hammerhead's like, listen, you got to give me some sort of like compensation because that was ridiculous. She shot me. You expect me to be civil around her? Uh-huh. And Kingpin's like, yeah, I do. Took Hammerhead and slammed him on the table like uh-huh. five times as he's finishing his sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Blood gets everywhere, and then he's just like, does anyone else have any freaking problems with this? Thanks. <laughs> the lady basically is kind of, her territory generally is Hell's Kitchen. And okay. since 
Fisk took on uh, Saved Hell's Kitchen. She's like, anything you need, like, I got you. You saved me, saved my family. You know, I appreciate you. So Kingpin says, you guys clearly need a leader. I'm going to focus on mayoral duties. But as far as I'm concerned, she is the Kingpin. Oh, wow. Okay. You will listen to her. What she says, she's speaking for me. And so he's creating this balance. But then... The meeting gets interrupted by Daredevil and Spider-Man. <laughs> and Fisk's two favorite people. Yeah, basically. Because it's happening in a giant bank vault and Daredevil can't rip off the, the door. And oh. so he needed he needs Spider-Man to add in the extra like menacing. Yeah. <laughs> so he ripped off the door. Daredevil's like, just because I'm going away doesn't mean you all aren't going to be watched. So and <laughs> Spider-Man is in the corner in some webs glaring in the shadows and nice. it looks super menacing. And then Daredevil's like, yeah, so, you know, slow your roll. And then they have a debrief. Pete's like, was I menacing enough? I really tried. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Spider-Man talks to Daredevil about a time when Spider-Man killed somebody on accident. Huh. And it was this time in Berlin in this comic book called Spider-Man versus Wolverine. Okay. He and Wolverine were in a bout and he accidentally, he like lost control of himself and he accidentally killed someone with his fist. Huh. He never admitted to it. He never told anyone and he's felt super guilty about it. And interesting. It completely weighs on him. But honestly, I believe that is the first time that's been brought up since then. <laughs> yeah. But it was a good, it was, it was nice. One, to reference something random like that, but then also yeah. draw that parallel between what happened with Daredevil and what happened to Spider-Man. At the same time, though, I feel like at this point in comics continuity, you can be like, not even know the reference and just be like, they have to have written Spider-Man is accidentally killing somebody at one point, right? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> let's, get, let's get the research team on this and, and see which one it is, because I know it must have happened. <laughs> Everything that could know, have right? happened. <laughs> Will have happened. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, because it was kind of strange in the last volume where Spider-Man was giving Daredevil such a hard time. Mm. Because Daredevil killed somebody, Spider-Man right. lost his shit. and was like, yeah. you're out of control. You're not pulling your punches anymore. What the hell is your problem? Like, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah, You're out of line. And yeah. so this kind of gave them that closure of Spider-Man cool. just being like, listen... Like, I'm really sorry about the way I was acting before. I didn't give you the benefit of the doubt. I killed someone once on accident. He says Wolverine was involved. Berlin, I was in over my head, threw a wild punch, and it was horrible. I didn't know what to do. I just, I wanted to come home. I've never told anyone this. I was mad at myself for not turning myself in, for going on like nothing had happened. I saw you, and I just saw myself and got so, so mad. I, I, and then Daredevil just hugs him, and they like... They just have like a moment of silence and then they hang out for the rest of the night. Cool. Yeah. And that, and that was just, that was powerful. And then you have Foggy putting together his legal team to help defend Daredevil. He gets Kirsten McDuffie, who is his current last ex-girlfriend. Okay. Who no longer knows that Matt is Daredevil. Of course. And so Kirsten is calling out Foggy like, why the hell isn't Matt representing? This yeah. is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And so Foggy goes and calls Mike and is like, hey, can you pretend to be Matt? Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And so the team is kind of, is coming together. And then, sorry, there's there's only two more things that happened in this freaking Daredevil volume. That's cool. Typhoid Mary, who was at the church and apparently got her memory back. She's kind of following Fisk around, being like, 
hey, so thanks for setting me up with that church. I've never felt more in control in my life. I got you. What do you need? And so she kind of appoints herself as his like bodyguard. Interesting. And that is a whole other thing. And so that's going to go somewhere. And then you have Electra showing up to talk to Daredevil. She figured out that he's Matt Murdock again. Okay. Right. I think you told me. Yeah. She, yeah. That she, was in the last volume, right? Maybe they, well, no. In the last okay. volume, she had two different exes. <laughs> ah. One being Daredevil <laughs> and one being Matt Murdock. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> but as, as more and more, oh, so basically... Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. So the reason why she remembers who he is is because she was off doing a mission with Stick. I totally forgot about this part. Okay. She's off doing a mission with Stick to go find this book. The book is important. Well, will be important in the future. Sure. In it, in that mission, she almost dies. Stick brings her back using some of the hands revival property stuff, but she didn't fully die. Anyway, she comes back and she sits up and she's like, nah. And so, like, that process restored her memory. So now she knows that Matt is Daredevil. Okay. Whatever. Sure. The book is stupid, <laughs> but the bo- <laughs> the book is basically a blueprint on how to take down the hand. In the past, they there have been like the five fingers who are supposed to control the hand. Uh-huh. But this talks about this other organization that was created in place to take out the hand and it's called the fist. So <laughs> The fist, <laughs> the the blueprint for the fist needs a king and a queen to lead the fist, and I think they're supposed to fight each other. I don't know, but okay. Electra is all in. She's down to be the queen, but she needs Daredevil to be the king. So that's what she wants, and she's trying to get him to do that. But Daredevil's like, "No, nah, I gotta go to jail. I'm out." <laughs> Electra's like, "You're being ridiculous. You're you're not looking at the big picture. We need to yeah. deal with the ham. This is literally what Stick trained us to do. Yeah, we need to go and be the king queen of the of the fist. Interesting. So we get to the trial right before the trial, or the night before the trial. Tony goes to bid on Hell's Kitchen, yeah. and he loses. Oh. Stormwind's backed out. Some random third-party shell company outbid both the Stormwinds and Tony Stark. Interesting. We're trying to figure out who the hell this is. Is it the the new Kingpin woman? It is not the new Kingpin oh, woman. Oh, okay. Turns out, so right at the trial, Matt is now poised to fight this because he can't go to jail because someone is in control of Hell's Kitchen. Right. And he needs to be out there dealing with that. At the trial, you have... Steve Rogers there. You have Luke and Jessica there supporting him. You have Mayor Fisk showing up with his right-hand lady, Typhoid Mary. And then you have Elektra in street clothes in the far back corner. And Daredevil's like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And then she whispers so only he can hear and says, hi, Matthew. By the way, I bought Hell's Kitchen. (laughs) <laughs> so Hell's Kitchen will be safe while you're doing your whole like self-sacrifice time. Okay. Uh, when you get out, Hell's Kitchen will be here and then we'll talk again. Interesting. Yeah. So she had been stealing a bunch of money and now was giving her giving her shit about it. He's like, You're stealing all this money, yada yada yada. And it turns out yeah. so he, she can go buy Hell's Kitchen. Well, Aww. maybe not so she can go buy Hell's Kitchen, but, but she used it for using it, anyway. it now to go yeah. buy Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> so Matt's like, Oh, Hell's Kitchen's safe. I'm good. 
So I'm out. <laughs> I plead guilty. And his team is like, wait, what the fuck? And he's like, yep, I plead guilty. Put me away. <laughs> so <laughs> other fun scenes happen, yada, yada, yada. But basically, the only other thing that happens is now that Daredevil's put away, Elektra puts on a Daredevil costume and is going around protecting Hell's Kitchen. Oh, shit. That's cool. Yeah, her her Daredevil design is pretty cool. It's it's very much a blend of Daredevil and Elektra. Yeah, totally. So she is now the protector of Hell's Kitchen. Daredevil is in jail. And we'll see what happens in volume six. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. That's a real tidy volume. That sounds like an awesome, just like self-contained story. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. Especially coming off of something so big like the riot in Hell's Kitchen from yeah. last volume. Okay, so Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. So we've got, this is volume four of Captain America. Mm-hmm. More dealing with Daughters of Liberty and teaming up with them. And we have Alexander Lucan. He is a older villain I think he's a Captain America villain. I'm under the impression he's a Captain America villain, but he's also mentally taken over by a basically reincarnated Red Skull. Okay. Yeah. And so there's kind of this developing power struggle between the two of them. Not that big a deal. Other things that have that happened. Oh, so Sharon Carter is super old right now. Okay. Because in Rick Remender's Captain America run, where with Dimension Z, time is sped up there. She got trapped in Dimension Z for like 10 minutes our time. Sure. And then she got brought back and saved. It was like 50 years her time or something. Yeah. And so she's super old, but she's active. Yeah. Yada, yeah. yada. There's no shield now, but she still likes to go by Agent 13 because it sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> we also find out that Peggy Carter is still alive. She is the current head of the Daughters of Liberty. Huh. We found that out last volume, but it wasn't that... It wasn't... It didn't feel like as big of a deal as it should be. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Especially when she had such a send-off in the uh, in the Brubaker run. Yeah. So the main villain we're dealing with here is actually Celine, which is interesting to me. That is interesting. So Celine, psychic, mutant, vampire, death eater lady... <laughs> Yeah, she's on Krakoa these days, and also right. what? And so that's and the thing. also what the heck does Celine have to do with Captain America? Also that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and we only know she's on Krakoa because she showed up in the background of a crossover volume. So like, you very specifically chose Celine at the same right. time. Yeah. It's, it's she becomes a footnote on a Wikipedia article of like Celine right. can be seen in the background on right, Empire right. X-Men issue <laughs> right. 3. So like it's, uh, it's um, but yeah, so this is what she's doing and she basically has created a she's created a second Pleasantville. Interesting. For those who don't know cuz that's probably most of everyone. So <laughs> Pleasantville was the place in Avengers Standoff, well in Standoff, it was a big crossover from a few years ago, Maria Hill, as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., created Pleasantville. It was an experiment where she takes all of the like superpowered prisoners, yeah. uses Kobik, a sentient cosmic cube, to rewrite their memories and 
make them basically docile 50s white picket fence inhabitants of this village, of this little town. So think Truman Show. (laughs) Yeah. But with reprogrammed supervillains, or also, you know, think WandaVision for a more (laughs) uh, timely (laughs) reference. Yeah, yeah. That obviously, as soon as that gets leaked, that obviously goes poorly. Partially because the Avengers stumble upon it and Kobik rewrites the Avengers. And so then you get heroes involved and just sure. bad times. I like that the the 50s suburban dream of the white picket fence is universally seen now in fiction as the place where you everyone wants to escape to to live their idyllic lives. But B, always 100% false and sinister. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a like, real, real interesting social commentary there. I'm not sure anybody's intending on, but eh, Coates probably is. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like it's because everyone who consumes media, not everyone alive, but everyone who consumes that kind of media only ever hears the legends of the white picket fence right. American dream. Yeah, yeah. Where it ends like that's referenced as like everyone is happy when they have a white picket fence family and that's completely ignoring every social commentary <laughs> ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the lived experiences of our parents who grew, or, you know, those of us even who are lucky enough to grow up in that, like, Oh yeah. It's this stifling psychic prison. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and yeah, to, to make that like the, the always go to, because in that portrayal, there are no problems. And so right. when you have a current town or city or township that has no problems, right. there's a shit ton of problems. Yes, <laughs> you're just ignoring them. <laughs> yeah. So Celine's new Pleasantville, and, and that's basically what it gets compared to because she's created this town of men who are following the, the classic American life. There's no tech jobs. It's all like farming and construction and like living off the land and sure. making your own place in town. And anytime someone stops contributing or is failing like the test, she consumes their soul. So cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she's basically creating like her own like human farm kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. So Cap and Bucky and uh, Sam Wilson are going and dealing with her while they're being supported by the Daughters of Liberty Liberty in the background. You have Tony Ho, who is Yinsen Ho's daughter. Okay. Yinsen is the scientist that Stark was trapped in the cave with. Oh, Way back when. And she got introduced in AIM Avengers. Mm. The Avengers AIM team led by Sunspot. Oh, cool. Uh, by yeah, Roberto yeah. DaCosta. She got introduced there. She's she's also just your your go-to tech genius. Mm-hmm. Loves to create suits and gadgets. Cool. She's kind of the hue of the team. Sweet. And you have other operatives out in in the field, like Natasha and uh, Misty Knight and Agent 13, Sharon Carter. They find out they're dealing with Celine, and so they want to get some help. And so instead of going to the X-Men, they go to Ashuri from Wakanda. 
Princess yeah. Shuri. Interesting. I know a lot of people will think of Shuri from the MCU, right? But Shuri from the comics is not a tech genius. She right. is spiritual. She has died and has since come back from the spirit realm. She has magical powers. She can turn into a flock of crows. And crucially, she's a she's a grown ass woman. She's not. A, she's not. A yeah, kid. she's not a young adult. Yeah. <laughs> And she is also dubbed the queen of the living where T'Challa is the king of the dead. And so they like share this spiritual responsibility with Wakanda. It's it's, it has created some very interesting storytelling pieces. Hmm. The queen of the living queen, king of the dead thing came from Hickman's uh, Avengers run. Right. So it's always going to have a special place in my heart for that. (laughs) And I will never forget it. And if they ever take it away, I'll be very upset. (laughs) (laughs) So point is Celine is has been trying to steal all these souls to fill this like gem that's on her chest on her necklace and once that thing is full then she'll have eternal life I don't know sure it's kind of macguffiny <laughs> <laughs> but Shuri and Sharon show up Sharon is in a uh Iron Patriot armor suit of armor that Tony made okay Tony Ho, not Tony Stark. Okay. <laughs> <Nick, it's>, yeah. <laughs> it's, sorry, I, I saw the difference in my head because it's T-O-N-I. Right. Not T-O-N-Y, but yeah. whatever. One of those things you don't need to worry about, you know, in lettering that <laughs> when you're podcasting different set of concerns. Absolutely. And it basically goes into Shuri. The whole point is Shuri <laughs> steals the energy that Celine's been carrying. She repurposes it and shoots it at Sharon Carter and restores her youth. So Sharon Carter, okay. after years, is no longer the old lady. She is now her younger self, young okay. adult self. Yeah. So that's fun. <laughs> and then she and Cap hook up for the first time in like ever because she's not an old lady anymore. Come on, Cap. You've got to be ageist about this. Right? Come on, man. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any other things worth mentioning. Like, there's, there's like, background stuff going on with other daughters. And, oh, it ends with supposedly Natasha dying. Huh. They are held captive by Sin, who is Red Skull's daughter. Sin and Crossbones. and. Lucan's wife, I forget her name, Alexander Lucan's wife. She has powers, not like crazy. She just shoots like energy and stuff, but I forget what her name is. Not that Alexa, Alexa Lucan. Yeah. So, anyway, it ends with Natasha hopping onto the chopper that Alexa is trying to get away on. Alexa shoots her, and it literally ends with Natasha falling off of the helicopter with smoke coming off of like her body. Okay. So one of those end of volume deaths where you're like, I don't know if they really intend for this to stick or for it to just be a cliffhanger. Right. And the reason why it's implied to be a death is Natasha's like thought boxes on this page are all of us are like that. Every mission, every mission I took, I was ready to die. And when you've already died once, well, it's easy. You just close mm. your eyes and let go. And that's the last like sentence as she's falling off and being shot. Interesting. Okay. Because Natasha has been killed canonically. Sure. Who has who hasn't these days? 
I know. But at least her coming back wasn't a resurrection. (laughs) It was a red room. Oh, God. It was a red room contingency plan for when an agent dies, they get genetically recreated and their memories implanted. Basically, basically what Kirkoa is doing. Yeah. But yeah, she got her head smashed in by a full force Captain America shield punch. Oh, no. This is back in Secret Empire. Uh, oh, it was Evil Steve, sure. and Evil Steve was going for a punch on Miles Morales, and Natasha jumped in the way, oh, wow. and it cracked her jaw and her oh, skull. God, that's yeah. brutal. So anyway, that all that happened. But my main point <laughs> is the last half of the issue is this little story called "The Promise," and uh, so it starts with this. Asian family is having a mm-hmm. uh, a funeral for their dad. Okay. Uh, it looks like he he lived a long life and Captain America is coming to speak at this funeral. And you're kind of like, who, why is he here? Yeah. He goes and he's the first one to speak. And he talks about when he first met this guy. His name is uh, Sung Jin. Sung Jin is his first name and Zhang is his last name. Anyway, okay. he met him as he was the person, only person working at this diner that Steve went to. And and he went there before he even became an Avenger when he was first like brought back and sure. he was doing some like odd missions for Shield and he was talking about how he had a long bad mission. This is when his identity was still secret, but he came in and his the coat he was wearing was still kind of open so he could see the Captain America like armor under it. Mm-hmm. Sung Jin noticed it, but didn't say anything, just wanted to get him his food. And they basically, they're amicable with each other, amicable with each other. Sung Jin was trying to figure out a, a nice place to take his wife or his girl for a date night. Uh-huh. He talks about how they like started their friendship and they check in all the time with each other. Sung Jin was a lawyer back in in his country. Guessing Korea, it, it sounds like a Korean name. Yeah, probably. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> but he, yeah, so he was a, a lawyer in Korea and his time here, he has been working the night job, night shifts to pay for going to law school so he could become a lawyer here in town. Hmm. Basically talking about how he had your like typical American dream of yeah you know, coming to America for a better life for you and your family and making a place for yourself. There's a conversation that they have about, and this is jumping through time. Sure. Steve talking about uh, basically when he first came across Nuke. Hmm. For those who don't know. So Nuke is your textbook gung-ho military man that is everything that military America would want from a Captain America. <laughs> yeah. And so they give him all these performance-enhancing drugs that make him lose his mind, but make him the perfect soldier. Impervious to pain, doesn't question orders, mm-hmm. etc. Super strong. Yeah. He has the American flag tattooed on his face. And <laughs> yeah, he that's, how you know that's how you know it's him. <laughs> yeah. So it's Captain America reeling from seeing this, like, other version of Captain America, basically. Yeah. This is part of America. And Sung Jin is like, yeah, there's, but that's just literally just how it is. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you don't have the experience of being an immigrant here that looks different. Mm. You know, being denied alone just because of how you look. 
It has like a picture of him at a bank with the application for a mortgage being denied where there's this like white banker guy just being, doing like, hmm. Yeah. And behind <laughs> him on the wall are two posters. They're like, no credit, no problem. Or sure. ask about low mortgage rates and like yeah. trying to make it so everyone can do it, but not but if not you're, yeah. not if you're a Korean. So yeah. And then he talks about how people get turned away for renting rooms because of how they look. And he has this other picture of a black guy uh, standing outside of a house that says rooms for rent and the people on the porch, like pushing him away. Yeah. Saying, no, you know, you know, I want you here. Steve asks, like, what would you do in my shoes? Sorry. There's a very key quote from some gene. You think that just because I love this country, I don't see the flaws. Immigrants see the best and worst of America every day. Mm. You're a great guy, Steve, possibly the best, but you've never been denied a job because of who you are. Never had a neighbor think you were less of a person because of your skin color or been told to go back to your own country. America makes a promise to all of us, but it doesn't keep that promise on its own. Mm. So Steve says, what would you do in my shoes? And he says, you're, you're a hero, Steve, but it's what you fight for that makes you one, not your fancy costume. It shows a time when Steve gave up the costume and became nomad. Yeah. And it shows Sung Jin getting his law degree and opening up his own practice. Mm -hmm. He became a citizenship and immigration lawyer, which is really cool. Yeah. Then it it flashes to a time when we first get introduced to the Winter Soldier and and Bucky. Because that's still pretty new and all. Yeah. Everyone knows Winter Soldier and Bucky at this point. But like... Winter yeah. Soldier only just got introduced in the early 2000s. Right. In comics terms, it's it's in still, comics, yeah. It's still a new concept. And yeah, Bucky was, Captain America has been around for like 80 years. <laughs> right. And and Bucky was considered one of those characters, like one of the very few characters in comics that you do not bring back. Like you don't bring back Uncle Ben, you right. don't bring back Bucky. Yep. He talks about the last time he uh talked to uh Sung Jin. Uh, he had gotten his diagnosis for his cancer that, that ended up killing him. And this is right after Steve came back at the end of Secret Empire and had mm-hmm. to deal with an evil version of himself. Sung Jin asked him, why do you still do it, Steve? After all these years, you've given so much. Why keep doing it? And Steve says, the smile on my face, on the smile on his face meant he knew that I was what I was going to say, but I answered him anyway. I don't fight for a country or a president or a flag. I fight for a dream. The founding fathers were imperfect men in an imperfect time, but the ideals that they set in place, the idea of America and all it can be is worth fighting for. Hmm. I fight for those who come here to build a better life. I fight for those who persevere despite a system that has been rigged against them. And I fight for those who struggle to change that system. I fight so people can worship how they want, love who they want and be accepted for who they are. I fight because others can't. I came here today because Sung Jin Jong was my friend. He came to this country with an education that wasn't recognized. He fed and raised a family while working a graveyard shift as a cook. He earned his law degree through sweat and sacrifice. And then he helped many others come to this country to be part of that same dream. In celebrating him, I've talked a lot about myself and my life, but that's because Sung Jin's story is my story. And I look around this room, I see that his story is our story. So I never stopped fighting for the dream because people like Sung Jin never stopped fighting for the dream. That's how I honor him. And I think that's how he'd want to be honored. By our struggle, our fight to make America that land of promise that he envisioned when he first came here with just a suitcase, the land that he wanted to see his children grow up in, the same land that Lincoln spoke of as a nation, as a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the, to the proposition that all men are created equal. I feel like that is Ta-Nehisi Coates' 
figuring out how he could write a character like Captain America and believe in him also. Yeah, this is the this is the mission statement for the entire run, basically mm-hmm. laying down a sort of set of principles for for how this character is going to function. Yeah. Yeah. And like the idea of what Captain America stands for gets every few years kind of gets questioned or thrown at Steve's face. Yeah. I always go back to it, but like Civil War Frontline, where they're interviewing Steve and it's like, do you even know what America is these days? Yeah. Things like, do you know how to use a smartphone? Do you know what Facebook is? Right. Where he comes from a different time and he has a very different, at the time, it, it was a very different ideal of what fighting for America was. Right. How do you translate that into the 21st century? Yeah. I feel like the answer never, that question very rarely ever gets addressed. Sure. This volume and this run by Coates, I think, is finally actually addressing that. Yeah. (laughs) Which I appreciate as a minority. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Again, I was like struggling with what would Captain America do in these kinds of things. And because of this, that issue, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, he would be in the front marching. Yeah. In all these movements and all that kind of stuff. So for sure. That was nice. I liked it. Cool. That's <laughs> awesome. And then I only need to spend like three minutes on Swordmaster. Yeah, let's go Swordmaster. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> they blessed me with another six issue volume of Swordmaster. You just what you always wanted. It's exactly what I always wanted. And again, so okay, so this is called God of War. The volume is called God of War. Okay. And I got confused because there is an arrow swordmaster. We have something not happening now where this, this guy's name is Lin Lee, where Lin Lee is teamed up with Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi already. Okay. He's already become like his like mentor mentee, and they team up with Ares, God of War, to go and deal with one of Ares' sons. It's a dragon. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. Greek mythology. So yeah. I thought we were going to get some of that. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> He's hanging out with a different God of War for no good goddamn reason. Yeah. So... It picks up right where the last one left off, where he he has met with this other lady. Her name is Show Show or something stupid. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Shang Shang. It's S-H-U-A-N-G. S-H-U-A-N-G. Okay. She shows up because there's this orb of power and the sword has been awakened. And Lin Lee has the sword and the orb in this wooden puzzle box. And those are the only two things that are connect are connection to his father who mysteriously disappeared on an archaeological dig. Oh, that's right. Swordmaster is the one who's like really good at puzzles, right? Yeah. Okay. He's a puzzle solving genius, apparently. Coming back. But they don't that. do any puzzles in this. No. It's a lot of running away. <laughs> Because it picks up where there's this god of war called Chio, which I just checked, and I'm so glad that it's a real god of war. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Chio is an ancient Chinese god of war. Okay. 
The Chiyo is honored and worshipped as a god of war and one of the three legendary founding fathers of China. So there you go. I feel like my gnomon's rubbing off on you and making you go to Wikipedia for everything you read now. <laughs> like, <laughs> so in Marvel, <laughs> we've been introduced to like six gods of wars. Yeah. I didn't feel that they needed to do another. And I was but they're, nervous. They're doing Chinese mythology. You know, they're I, doing Chinese yes, characters, they are. Chinese and that's, mythology. That's fine. Yeah. And I get it. But half of my exposure to ancient mythology is through Marvel. And uh-huh. I had never heard of Chio. Okay. And so, and I'm probably butchering its pronunciation, but I started to question because Swordmaster is <laughs> brand new and an original character from a video game. Right. Did they make up a God of War? Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness they didn't. So it's basically just uh, Shang Shang and, and Lin Li running from these minions of Chio. The first three issues are them trying to get to the village that Shangsheng is from. Oh, God. In order to get there, <laughs> they find Lin Li's old roommate, Chang, because he has a car. Excellent. They try to fly there, but they can't because the sword doesn't necessarily go anywhere. He's just holding it. And they're like, like you can't take this one. They won't let him through, through TSA. That's hilarious. <laughs> wow. He's like, but this is this is from my father. Blah, blah. Dude, he is so immature. I have developed a real intolerance for incredibly immature pro tags. Yeah. And it has tainted my experience for <laughs> some anime that I watch. And, uh-huh. and and characters like this. Yeah. That is the, the main character of this book <laughs> that I have to read because it's in the 616. It's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> Point is. Uh, at least you recognize you did this to yourself. Yeah. Chang, Shang Shang, <laughs> and, and Lin Li driving to the tribe temple that Shang Shang's group is from sure and it's currently being overwhelmed with minions of chio and they're fighting they're trying to help and yada 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 and then i'll and and you're having through this the sword has chosen linley because he is a descendant of the fushi clan that okay. is in charge of the sword there's three clans each of them had a different legendary weapon Sure. His is the sword. Shang Shang's clan has these like bracelets, which are not comparable. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the third tribe is a whip. Okay. But, you know, magic. So it doesn't really matter what the tool is. Right. Through the issues, we see Lin Li's connection to the sword starting to blossom. It flies all over the place. And sometimes it comes to him. Sometimes it just points at where he needs to be looking. Okay. He's he's figuring it out. Anyway, this is this this is why I'm I, I get upset. So the head of the Nuwa clan, which is the which is Shang Shang's clan, okay. shows up to be the like tipping point of the battle. Okay. She's this old grandma. She ends up being Shang Shang's grandma. Sure. Old lady, she's got the bracelets. She does this giant attack and is just like Screams out first off, screams, get off my lawn. But <laughs> seriously, oh, yeah, that's uh, hilarious. Uh, get off my wow. lawn. Wow, okay. So, this splash page of like a hi, I'm here attack, yeah, is the last page of the issue, huh? 
You turn the page. And look, here's the cover for the next issue. Yeah. Way to kill a page flip there. How dare you if you 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 were gonna make me wait a month to figure (laughs) out what the hell is happening here? How dare? How dare? (laughs) And then it just jumps right back into like the action. Like yeah, I, I feel like the 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 author of this book watched way too much anime <laughs> because well so they have a very anime artist and the art okay is, if it's written well it works it's not written that well but like you have a very unserious tone throughout sure. the title and yeah. like you have them with like the anime blank angry eyes yeah you know in the background and so like it's it's very very saturday morning anime kids cartoon sure it felt like that was a commercial break or the <laughs> or the end of the episode. But yeah. if it were a an anime, I would only have to wait a week. <laughs> and on top of that, you're giving me you you would there would be a next week on right <laughs> next week on Swordmaster after the after the credits. Like you don't just leave me on that. It, it, <laughs> the pacing is terrible. The pacing yeah. is terrible. Like I think they wrote the entire thing. All the pages, and they're like, okay, so every 24 pages, just cut it. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Anyway, this is what it is. So grandma fights off the demons. Grandma pledges her clan's loyalty to Lin Lee. And Shang Shang is just like, wait, why? And it's like, if the sword chose him, then he is the chosen one. We must follow. And like, okay. And then so everyone's like, all hail Lin Lee of the Fushi, successor of the sword, yada, yada. And then grandma takes them to this secret place under the village to just blast us with exposition (laughs) and talk about what's going on. We get get introduced to Chio and the idea behind the weapons. Chio was destroying the world. He finally got stopped and they separated his body into three different pieces, each of which is being guarded by one of those weapons. So his body is being guarded by the bracelet clan. His head is being guarded by the sword clan and his heart is being guarded by the whips. It sounds a lot like Shinto, like, I don't know what little I know about Shinto from the game <laughs> from the game Okami, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that you know you all got your alphabet from the Chinese and a lot of the right. culture too. You'd never admit right. it. You'd be, you know, the Japanese mm-hmm. would be very uh, upset and angry to hear that. But come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then his soul is divvied up into like three soul orbs that are contained with those three grave sites, tombs, whatever. That was 4,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, Lin Lee is like, and then the orb that dad mailed me is really important. And because he got, he got it in that red wooden box. Right. Grandma's like, no, I'm afraid it wasn't your father who mailed the orb. What do you mean? It was Chio all along. He wants <laughs> to make sure you possess the orb. What? But why? The sword shall reveal the answer to that question. Watch, for it will show you what transpired in the tomb of Chio's head. That's the last issue, or the last page of that issue. <laughs> uh-huh. Excuse you? Mid-exposition dump. 
The thing that also pisses they're, me off. They're, they're giving you a cliffhanger and, and the reward for the cliffhanger is more exposition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't say to be continued. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't in the original issue. Because yeah. I guess you have those when we were reading like the Dawn of X's and stuff. Yeah. You had some extra text that I didn't. Yeah. But whatever. So yeah, the first vo- the first page of the last issue is exposition 4,000 years ago. Yeah. And basically we have, we're only dealing with the head of Chio and how it's impossible to contain. The strongest chains that they've made isn't containing it. It keeps on lashing out. And then the head of the clan looks at the forest and it's blood drenched. He's like, hey, make chains out of the forest, out of the trees. And they're like, you're insane. Why? And he's like, is drenched with the blood of our brothers and sisters and their spirit will strengthen these bonds to make sure that Chiyo's head will stay where it is. And so they're like, all right, (laughs) (laughs) they make the wooden chains and he stabs the skull with the sword and he gets locked down and you're like, yeah, we did it. As the tradition is passed on, basically the the Fushi clan has to go and like re-drench their blood on the chains. Okay. So every 4,000 years, you just pour some blood on something. Got it. No, like all the time. Oh, okay. And as the threat of Chiyo becomes more and more legend and not story, they become less and less dedicated to the practice. Uh, Sure, yeah. To the point where it's just a myth and it's completely dried up and nobody is putting more blood on the wood. Sure. And then excavation happens, explosions, it blows up the brittled wood. And mm-hmm. that's what lets the orb kind of take over. Sword falls in this like explosion of soul energy. The excavation team is like, whoa, what the hell happened? Some of them are killed. The dad is hurt and bleeding and he's trying to find where to go. He sees the sword. He's like, oh, what's this? He falls, touches the sword. His blood gets on the sword. The sword activates and it goes to Lindley. Huh. Yeah. And so the sword, the orb, is put. I don't know how this happened, but the <laughs> orb is put in that wooden box, and the wood box is made from that those chains. Oh, okay, sure. And that's why the box is red. Ah, uh... it ends with the grandma being like, "All right, Lindley, that's what happened. You have your answers. Now you need to train because you suck at sword wielding." <laughs> but he's a sword master. That's the name of the title. I know. It's not him yet. I know stupid so <laughs> we also get introduced to uh his brother his i don't remember his brother's name it di- it didn't seem like a big deal until now because his brother grew up and took on started doing the archaeological stuff with okay. the dad he was on the site and back when they were trying to get chang the sword was pointing at somebody that looked exactly like his brother and he was like, oh, my gosh. And then they got distracted. And so he couldn't go and find them. And so it's like this mysterious of who, who the brother is. Anyway, sure. the epilogue is his brother in some, like, magical forest maze. And he finally finds his way to the edge. And he says, ah, here it is. I hope they don't mind. I am eager to see my little brother, after all. I hope Lin Lee feels the same. And it's him standing there looking smug. And there's a bunch of, like, demons hiding in the background. Oh, okay. So, like, he has... A, some sort of controlling connection to the demons. Yeah. I don't know. 
But then it says to see to see more Swordmaster pick up Atlantis attacks. So they're not even going to continue with the story the next time we see Swordmaster. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't like it. <laughs> so two things. One, I am so curious to know how this is doing in China. Like mm, if this is yeah. selling well in China and like it like if if this is if it's like a cultural difference, like if it, you know, if this mm. uh, comes across as like a good story elsewhere and we just would, it just doesn't like appeal to readers like us. Right. So that's one. The other, I am super curious or I find it really interesting rather that of the two. So you've got arrow and sword master, right? That sword master is dealing with this like, super tradition heavy mythological like you know folkloric sort of story and arrow is incredibly contemporary professional tech mm. architect you know young professional sort of person and it's it's really interesting to me that those are sort of the the two poles of the chinese market stories that they're telling and yeah well, I'm I'm surprised that they chose those two because mm. there's like there's there's other characters you know there's Crescent and Io, the little sure. girl, right, right, with the ghost bear. There's yeah. also Wave. Gosh, there's like two more also. Yeah, that have just gotten like one issue intros, and that was right. Like, yeah, for a second I thought you were gonna say like you know some of the other. Chinese national superheroes that have been introduced over like the decades and decades of, of Marvel <laughs> continuity, but those are real spotty. Like I they're, think of, and they, they're still a thing. Yeah. But I think of like collective man or something, the collective man. And it's like the strength of every, the strength of every Chinese person. I'm sorry that that's, I don't, that's I don't, very it, strange. I don't precisely know how, but that's, gotta be racist in some way like <laughs> like what do we know about chinese people i don't know there's a billion of them okay this guy is there's all billion, billion of them, of them. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they're 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 communists they like to work as a collective okay cool we got our character <laughs> the last thing is there's with collected editions you sometimes get like fun little character art in the back. Yeah. You have the character art design of Swordmaster in his like suit in his like uniform that he still has yet to get. Yeah. You have Shang Shang in her suit that she has yet to get. But then the last page has Chang and apparently Chang's going to be the guy that gets the whip. <laughs> so they just spoil it right away. Yeah. Like just a, just as like bonus art. Hey, by the way, yeah. Chang's going to be whip guy. <laughs> <sighs> Brutal. Why you got to do Chang like that? I guess I could have noticed on the cover of the first volume, they're all in it. Chang's oh, there. Oh, okay. And uh, they're all in their costumes, which is terrible promo material because yeah. none of this happens in the <laughs> damn fucking story. So I do have to say, I know one of the things that you pointed out that you really liked about Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel was that they kept her out of her costume and not being a <laughs> they didn't go two volumes without costume but they okay showing the character and letting us 
getting us to love the person behind the mask yeah is was my point i know and giving us time to get to know lin lee when he's being thrown around dragged through exposition we're yeah. not getting a chance to get to know no, absolutely not yeah so tired of this guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay I, i'm just trolling you at this point i don't care i'm gonna defend <laughs> myself this is ridiculous i don't deserve <laughs> this <laughs> but uh yeah so not a great not a great read but it happened. Cool. The the thing that bothers me about solo titles that lead up to crossovers, like Alanis Attacks, I'm very much like, well, let me know where they're coming from. What kind uh-huh. of baggage are they bringing to the to this crossover? Yeah. I I, and there's I don't think, I don't think there's going to be any continuity. I don't yeah. think, like, all the stuff that Arrow has been doing and all the stuff that Swordmaster has been doing, yeah. both of their stories have nothing to do with the Arrow and Swordmaster other book <laughs> that I read. Right. Completely different timelines. And yep. none of those have to do with the Agents of Atlas crossover for um, War of the Realms that we got introduced to them for their first time in our chronological existence. Yeah. In the comics, there's three very different storylines that they're telling, and then they're going like, "Keep an eye out in Atlantis Attacks." But like, <laughs> yeah. but Atlantis Attacks is part of King and Black, so like, it's the, <laughs> you introduce <laughs> Agents of Atlas <laughs> in the War of the Realms, with and then in two crossovers and two years later, you're doing King and Black Atlantis Attacks. But then you're doing origin stories for Arrow and Swordmaster, which logically is set before War of the Realms. But then they both say, next, Atlantis attacks. But then you also have Arrow Swordmaster, which has happened maybe after War of the Realms. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like what I was saying with the... um, I had a while back like a... uh, an issue of Excalibur that was setting up a future storyline. Mm-hmm. It was setting up the, it, oh, it was when they went to Mount Wondegore uh, when Colossus yeah. walked all the way to Mount Wondegore. Right. <laughs> and then basically showed up there and gave the full exposition dump of the conflict going on with Exodus. And then High Evolutionary was like, I don't need you, go away, bye. And just sent him back to Paris where he was going in the first place. And it's like, this isn't even like a setup for a different right. story because you didn't set anything up. It's just a commercial for a different story. But it's very much like, why? Like, of all the characters you could have used, <laughs> yeah. yeah, why this why? character? Totally, yeah. Why tell the Arrow Swordmaster book yeah. if that's not even going to be a thing? That that book actually is what establishes them with six one six. Like they start crossing over with yeah. established character. I don't know. Ah, ah, whatever. <laughs> that was my week. I started Eternals. I was going to go into it a little bit, but I'm running out of time. So sure, we'll 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 dive in in full uh, next week. Sounds good. All right. Well, then let's switch gears and head on over to the big scary gnomon. Do you want to give you a recap for the first half of this chapter that we're in? The Barry Hoon Bekele chapter? Yeah. I, my, um, my notepad from last week didn't get saved. Brutal. Yeah. I'm really, <laughs> it's not, it's not great. 
So I can only go off of like, oh yeah, moments. Yeah. We oh, this was talking about there's a conversation with a character about like Google Glass technology and the idea of how awesome would it be if people had like a voting system that they could theoretically do that like would be something that you check in with every day and how wild would it be if we had an AI that was just like kind of out there like keeping an eye on people and you know what could you do with that kind of technology kind of like alluding to like the first makings of the witness yeah I just don't remember the names of everyone involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the narrator of this chapter, Barry Hoon Bekele, he is a an Ethiopian guy. He was a painter and then moved to the UK, quit painting, had a kid, started a home security company. His son eventually had a daughter of his own. Daughter's name is Annie. Annie is a tech genius. And he went to learn about computers <laughs> from Annie. And she said, no, that's dumb. Let's do something else. How about you make all the art for my new video game, Witnessed? And Witnessed is, in a lot of ways, you know, has, has a lot of the same aesthetic strictures or uh, components of The Witness that we see right. in the later chapters or in the Neath chapters. Yeah, so I kind of brought up the, the thing that you were talking about, the distributed democracy voting sort of thing. That's something that they are talking about in this sort of tech incubator lab that Annie works for called The Fire Judges. Yes, and The, and the Fire Judges is a book that the, the dead woman had in her house. No, Five Cardinals of Z was. I don't Five think... Cardinals of Z. But we saw Fire Judges. Fire Judges has come up a few times. It was yeah. mentioned by Lernrote. Lernrote asked if Neith had come across them. Yet. Have you seen the Fire Judges? And the Fire Judges were that band, that random band that they played off as like, oh, you don't know about Fire Judges yet. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Anything else from last week to go through? No, that's about it. There was an interesting note on the security system as being a sort of five-fold thing. And then Brexit anxiety. So Berhun Bekele is designing art for the game. He's worried about Brexit. I got a quote here that hopefully I didn't read last week. (laughs) (laughs) Says that was my guiding principle in design, that Annie's world was one derived from a heedless benignancy that based its assumptions on fine ideas rather than messy truths, and in the process birthed not a utopia, but, but a kind of great Procrustean bed on which the whole of Britain must lie. What if, I asked myself, the, the great liberal project that was the underpinning of all British political parties was truly not stuttering, but collapsing under the weight of its own Victorian contradictions? What if Annie's generation became persuaded that predictability and security for the many were more important than those caught in the sharp corners of the government machine? It had been in my life an unchallenged tenet that a nation should strive to accommodate all its citizens, even if that occasionally meant the tail wagging the dog. How, though, if the new formulation of democracy for the coming century did not accept that? How if it rejected the presumption of innocence in favor of a scientific and inquisitorial finding of truth? From this cauldron I conjured a state constructed on the sacrifice of privacy in exchange for a power that seemed direct and real, but was at heart undermined. I built it to be seductive yet uh, unsettlingly flawed, and I expressed those flaws in how it looked and felt. Nowhere was the truth of Ethiopia as I knew it more evident 
than the map and image of the capital in the new buildings decreed by the emperor rising above the old ones, the future emerging from and crushing the past. I made this new London in the game in the spiritual image of my old Addis Ababa, and always, always must there be a hint of Annie's Minotaur, the subtle, unforced error which made everything in the game world fraught where it might have been fine. So we're sort of connecting the future, the witness, to the present Brexit, to the past of Haile Selassie's Ethiopia along the lines of the conflict of security of the many conflicting with the rights of the few. Remember that the epigraph to this whole book was about Selassie's Ethiopia. And it said, when the first question was asked in a direction opposite to the customary one, it was a signal that the revolution had begun. After that, he reminisces a bit about Ethiopia. So let's do a quick history lesson. Haile Selassie was the autocratic ruler of Ethiopia from 1930 to 1974, except for a brief interim from 36 to 1941 when it was invaded and occupied by Mussolini's fascist Italy. Haile Selassie's role in the resistance to fascism got him named Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 1936. Much like Wakanda, Ethiopia was never colonized by any European power, though Italy tried to invade and failed in the 1890s. In case you're wondering why Italy, of all places, had such a mad on for Ethiopia, it's because they'd already colonized Somali uh, nearby Somalia and Eritrea and decided, let's have a little more. Instead of colonialism, it was ruled by a dynasty of empires and uh, of emperors and empresses that traced their lineage all the way back to the Israelite King Solomon and Makeda, Queen of Sheba. Uh, Haile Selassie was his ruling name. His birth name was Tafari. Makonan, often preceded by the title Ross, which means head. And yes, he is the center prophet godhead of the Rastafarian religion, Ross Tafari. Oh. Yeah. I don't pretend enough to, to know enough about how Rastafarian, uh, about Rastafarianism to comment on how that works. But, and this book, you know, mostly steers clear of that connection. I just think that it's fascinating. <laughs> something something non-colonized part of africa plus semitic oh, slash israelite <laughs> lineage maybe i don't know something something <laughs> something something yeah <laughs> something something rastafarianism <laughs> as emperor selassie's overwhelming concern was economic industrial and educational modernization barry hoon describes his the selassie's self-appointed role as the bridge his nation must cross to go from a timeless, timeless and superstitious past to an accelerating future. Selassie outlawed, outlawed slavery, joined the League of Nations and then the UN, and uh, all the while cultivated especially close ties with the US and UK, but staying out of a lot of Cold War factionalism. He introduced constitutional law to the country, created a legislational parliament, etc. But on the other hand, he cultivated like a real extreme cult of personality and was such a figure of power that he essentially acted as dictator. He, uh, Ethiopia's human rights record was awful. Civil liberties were low. Ethiopian army committed war crimes during the wars against Italy, as well as against Eritrean separatists. And notably, Selassie, though he was far from the only one, did during his reign oversee the notorious prison Alem Bekagen, which had, sure, I'm pronouncing that wrong, which is translated about five different ways on Wikipedia, but means something like end of the world or farewell to the world. And it was a site of mass political detention during Selassie's reign. 
I'll get back to that later. Yeah. Mm. Selassie was overthrown in 1974 amidst the oil shock and economic crisis of the mid-70s by a military junta called the DERG, D-E-R-G, not an acronym, just their name. I'll have more on that later. So in this chapter, Barry Hoon describes Ethiopia as a nation of spies. Quote, every morning the emperor awoke and was dressed. Oh, he was called the Lion of Judah. And so he has like actual lions in his court. Mm-hmm. Is that every morning he awoke and was dressed, and his first public action was to feed a ferocious menagerie of predatory cats in sequential uh, in the sequential and nervous company of his three chief intelligencers. Each of these ministers lived in terror of the day when his collected information should be so incomplete as to cast suspicion upon himself, which would, in the instant, result in a fall that might terminate in a cell, or indeed might not terminate at all, but continue into the gullet of one of the lions. They therefore cultivated agents not only in one another's camps, but also in the countless cliques and parties that teamed in Addis Ababa, but also in every household and family, however innocent. Fathers were constrained to keep watch upon their children's opinions. Mothers reported on their husbands, teenagers upon their friends, and students upon their teachers. Teachers, often trained overseas and recruited by the agencies of other nations, were doubled in by the emperor's espiocrats and then tripled by Langley's, Moscow's, or London's, and betrayed all of the above for whatever local pro- plot had captured their hearts. There was no place in the city where someone was not watching, and th- that someone was watched in turn, and all of this watching flowed upwards from the streets to the grand houses to the imperial person himself. It must have been a profoundly nervous existence to be Solomon Kadir or one of those other intelligence ministers. But I think what it did to us, the common people, who had no such prominence, was more terrible, if more diffuse. We lived in the panopticon, eh? And Bentham was entirely wrong about how it works. The watchers, watching one another, became increasingly desperate and paranoid lest they miss something, while we, constantly observed, became almost exhibitionist in our sins. We flaunted them and dared our master to take offense at our juvenile conspiracies and excesses of the flesh. Shove that one in Hank McCoy's face. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of how Berhun Bekele sees, sees Ethiopia, the Britain. Ethiopia oh. that he grew up in. Um, he said uh, for himself, it kind of goes into his own backstory. He grew up middle class, you know, traveled abroad for school as a young adult, partied with European expats in the red light district of Addis Ababa, very cosmopolitan sort of situation. Apparently Addis Ababa got really cool in the sixties, uh, becoming for the first time in hundred years, uh, this is a quote, becoming for the first time in hundreds of years, a de rigueur stop on the travels of the powerful and scholarly. This was the nation that had fought off the scramble for Africa that had its roots in the line of Solomon and now saw its modernity rushing outward into a time of spaceships and orbital colonies. So within this scene, he started painting at age 22 in a sort of Afrofuturist style. And then he had a sort of hallucination, he calls it, or experience that made him aware of a universe beyond his own and a, a grand interconnectedness. He says, An instant before, I had been sitting on a fiendishly comfortable sofa and slowly sliding into a reverie that might lead to sleep or that placid joy that sometimes comes out of nowhere in a crowded room. Now I smelled anise, as if someone were toasting it in a pan beneath my nose, and the two glasses at my feet hurled their contents into the air, as if the room were abruptly dropping into a bottomless chasm. 
The streaming Yugen still lines of Chateau Moussard framed two entwined figures by the buffet table in such a way as to sketch an open door in the air. My vantage point had rotated around a single point and I was looking through an opening that had always been present but was only now accessible into what smelled at the time like a musty cellar, a furnace, a fishmonger's, and something else my nose had no name for. From the doorway, a voice spoke to me. The, world, the words were unclear, as if from a radio tuned improperly to the station, and the greater part of what was said escaped me in a river of noise. Fa la ji ro ji ja. Some weird glossolalia symbols, but we'll come back to those later. All the same, it came to me perfectly that my correspondent was in the extra nomadic uh, mask of the great Anax Anaximander of Miletos. I really should have looked up that name, but I didn't. So maybe next week uh, I'll give you I'll give you the Wikipedia slacking. summary of Anaximander of Miletos. Now part of a galactic consciousness, and here imparting to me the knowledge that the true reality is a series of five concentric brains or schemes. Brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, like membranes. Uh, arranged, oh, okay. uh, yeah, arranged as spheres, the inner kernel of which is wrapped tightly around the uttermost crystalline circumference in a manner as, such as to defy Newtonian physics. I said that was very cool. Furthermore, an examander said, I was already set upon a path to the singular conjunction which would bind all these together, the birth of the burning ocean which flows through all things and makes all places one place. I should open myself to the experience so that I might live. Beware, jealous Hephaestus, the bearer of the burning torch, an examander said, and remember what I have told you, five concentric spheres which must align. I said I would remember, and evidently I have, and a moment later the wine glass was, uh, was back in the glass and the doorway to eternity was gone. This sort of visitation was then happening constantly. John Lennon had been given an egg by visitors from another planet and passed it on to Uri Geller because it was, he said, too much of a drag on his mind. All across the United States, Australia, and Europe, even the Middle East and Russia, people, including no, messel, no less a man than Jimmy Carter, were seeing lights in the sky and making contact with entities that were either from other worlds or part of an eternal mind that dreamed the human race. Perhaps there was, no, in the end, no difference between the two. The naive perception of what an alien might be was yielding to stranger and more numinous conceptions of panspermic space gods, energy beings, and sentient ideas. It would have been more startling if, over time, I had no such moment of transcendence. After all, everyone else did. Hmm. So, yeah, he goes at, to pains to describe this, like, transcendent spiritual experience and then rephrase it as something entirely pedestrian and normal. And after that, though, his painting finds this sort of purpose and voice and meaning. He starts working in a manic state, but it comes out confused at first with, quote, strange shapes, futures and pasts and presents colliding with blatant symbols of politics and sex, science and rock and roll. He eventually realizes that he has to paint pentaptic, you know, like a diptych, a triptych. A diptych is two panels of a painting that you look at together, and a triptych is three this is five. Oh, hence the five Hence brains. the five, okay. yeah, skeins of reality in order to capture like the multifaceted reality of the world that he's been shown. It says, the viewer must learn to see my work in a way different from other art, must allow, indeed much re must reach for and embrace radical art alterations in perspective. 
Out of Ethiopia would come an art that demanded a new mode of perception to be understood. The mind of the viewer would not only be changed by the work itself, but would undergo willing modifications simply in order to appreciate that work on its own terms. To reach the new world, I would express, my audience would have to make a commitment to cross a small but significant Rubicon of the self and meet me halfway. Again, this theme of like people becoming other people, like the Stella person in the Kyriakos chapter. So his first pentaptic painting, he sells to an American who takes it home to New York City, where it's admired by, quote, a Rockefeller, a Heinz, and two Kennedys, and the editor of Time magazine, then gets a write-up in The New Yorker. He's made a small celebrity in the art world. And then we jump back to present day. Not present day, rather, because we're all. This chapter started with him and Annie and Annie's lover, Colson, in the burning building. Someone had thrown a bomb at his house when they were all there. And so we're, we're jumping back to 2016, to Brexit, to Brexit times, while he's making the art for, wit, uh, for Witnessed. And he's calling upon the, you know, that sort of spiritual experience and first muse or catalyst for his art. There are some quotes here about the types of things that he put into the art that I found interesting. He describes the painting that Kyriakos bought titled Nomon with the metal object sticking out of it. And he says, I, I had traced the outline of a grim leviathan in a forest of numbers to the stark disapproval of the viewing public who wanted more in the vein of frozen worlds and bikini astronauts. And he uses that as a reference point for the game, as well as, quote, a fish white assassin in a Warhol suit. So pale and yeah. compared to a fish, much like our friend. Like Lenroy. Yep. He also says, a banker in the robes of an ancient priest. Well, we know a banker, but he hasn't been in any robes yet. Annie herself, much older, captured and interrogated in the guilty society she had imagined for us. And her grandmother, slim and beautiful and ailing, cast as a Roman scholar and made just different enough that I did not think Michael would see it. Clearly got mm. Athenaeus here. And then he says he painted... Annie herself as the person. This is basically, this is the Chamber of Isis, right? These are the, the paintings from the inside of the Chamber of Isis, only not including himself. But it, it has the fishwhite assassin instead. Well, no, I guess not, because the Chamber of Isis had the satyr and not Kyriakos. Never mind. This is not the inside of the Chamber of Isis. But it's definitely Athenaeus. And it's interesting that the person in Diana Hunter's position is, he paints as Annie herself, Annie. but older, much mm -hmm. older. And other random things that he puts in his work, these are harder to place within the narrative that we've gotten so far. Clotho at her work, lifting a boy from a stark Italian futurist coffin that might have been the headquarters of an international bank. Okay, boy in a coffin sounds like Athenaeus' son. Right, because he was in that coffin of honey. Mm. Next detail, a great crowd of identical women laying siege to a white stone castle. Don't know that one. A dead man lying murdered in the street of a city whose new architecture sprouts cancerous and optical from homely London red bricks. We haven't seen that yet. A nest of wires becoming roots becoming roads, penetrating the sleeping skull of a goddess. Haven't seen that. That is interesting. Yeah. 
a lonely detective pursuing or fleeing a killer along a film noir alleyway whose shadows were cast not by dressed neo-gothic stone, but by the steel and glass of tomorrow's skid row. Lonely detective sounds like Neith. Neith, yeah. He, he kind of finishes the main work of the game. This, this next part I only put in because it's a cool part of how I like video games. Like I feel like you and I are kind of similar in how we play video games in this regard. He starts making art for like dense subplots and Easter eggs that might even be entirely procedural generated, procedurally generated based office ideas. Quote, there is a subclass of gamers, Annie said, who existed as ludic spelunkers, interested only in going where no digital foot had gone before, and they would abandon the main history and work their way through every subsidiary tunnel and hidden door to find whatever we left. Let two disparate characters be reading the same book, she said, or let their homes have the same plan. And no sooner was the game released than there would sprout a jungle of secondary interpretations to make villains of heroes and saints of monsters. Woven around about the spine of events, there must be truths and implications revealed in asides and recurrent symbols. They would make meaning out of everything. That's awesome. Right? I just love... I like this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This game sounds like everything Cyberpunk 2077 was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Dude, those little like Easter egg context things yeah. are like, those are the kinds of things that you can get out of like the Dark Souls games, uh-huh. the Souls yeah. games. Like every item that you get has a description that like gives context to the story of the totally. world that you're in. Yeah. Or like, and, like your deep dive ugh. on Hollow Knight lore when you never even played the game. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then my own obsession with like the... I, I really think that the Xenosaga games are responsible for my love of so many things, including this book. Just like setting me down the path of all of these like really like pretentious postmodern bullshit and, you know, esoteric religious traditions and so on. And yeah, all about it. I used to go, I was talking about this yesterday, play magic with some folks, how I used to go on game, game FAQs message boards and just argue about like the use of Gnostic mythology in the Xenosaga, the first Xenosaga game as to try and find clues as to where the rest of them were going. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a lot. I was a lot back then. <laughs> not that I'm not back now. Then. Yeah, okay, okay. Here I am doing like... <laughs> You know, a months-long exposition of a 600-page postmodern novel on a podcast. Fuck me. <laughs> a month month long so far. Months, plural. This, Yeah, we're only a third of the way through the book, bud. Anyway. <laughs> so Barry Hoon finishes the job and goes back to his home security company. And then the game comes out in November and the marketing starts. He sees his art, his art and posters on buses, a spot in the 6, uh, 6 o'clock news. He discovers and then shuns social media in a hilarious passage, but slowly he realizes that the witness was breaking out, or that, sorry, that witnessed was breaking out, that people were talking about it. Then when I turned around, it was a huge success, and then it was a phenomenon, and then this year's breakout thing. Paper magazines began to talk about it. Schools and parents objected to it. And then an MP denounced it in the House of Commons, which in turn required that another MP come to the game's defense. In the United States, it was was denounced as un-American, which is nothing more than the truth because none of us were remotely American. But for some reason, the assertion stirred up a controversy and we got more and more coverage. 
Was the game sensationalist or simply sensational? Something about it spoke to people, certainly, and it gave them pause. You could explore witnessed, fight in it, sneak in it, survive in it, or turn the tables on the game and become the oppressor. The protagonist and her nemesis dueled against the Orwellian backdrop of a nation not merely under surveillance but composed of it. A democracy where everything the citizenry did was totally transparent. The ostensible enemy was a mysterious group called, inevitably and humorously, the Fire Judges. Remember, that's the name of Annie's company. One fought them, the other unknowingly served them. It was hard to tell which of them was good and which was evil, or whether such distinctions still made sense in the maze of missions and quests right up until the Minotaur was revealed. It resonated with a population increasingly aware that liberty does not, in fact, mean micro-policing, and that they had bartered away their historical legal rights in the name of keeping out a fifth columnist jihadi Muslim army that did not exist in the way they had been told. Then, too, here was a fantasy world which discreetly inverted the established conventions of such creations. White people looked subtly wrong in the game, sickly and slick. It was an elegant political prank, especially in a medium not widely known for progressive nuance. And it advanced the notion of games as art, and that in turn created comment. And comment, well, you already know what comment is. Hmm. Yeah. Along the way, they merchandise the hell out of it. They make a shit ton of money. And now, because of the increased attention on his work, all his old paintings that he has in an attic that he could never sell are worth millions of dollars. And, uh, quote, (laughs) Greek billionaires bought a dozen canvases at a time. And then Annie gives an interview on YouTube and says that she thinks women of color are underrepresented in games. And this, coupled with her popularity or her success, creates a giant target. And post-Brexit, a lot of the same Trumpist, proud boy, neo-fascist goons that we see in America are emboldened and empowered. They call themselves Georgists in this novel after the sort of patron saint of England, St. George, even though he's Turkish, but whatever. Annie becomes a target online with endless death threats and rape threats. And then eventually in person, someone throws pig's blood in her face. Mm. Yeah. Barry Hoon has just a complete, he just gets angry as hell. Just a complete like turn here. He leaves the family security company and he starts a brand new app. <laughs> he's learned enough to know, you know, what's ca- what it's capable of. And so he, you know, decides he's going to hire up a staff and, and create an app called Walking While Black, a way to crowdsource hate crimes with GPS tagged experiences to map more and less racist areas, safe routes home, institute you know, show where the institutionally racist police forces are and so on. He says eventually he'll have iterations for women, trans people, other people of color, people with disabilities, etc. That's crazy. Yeah. Flash forward to the scene where we started this chapter inside the burning house with Barry Hoon, Annie and Coulson. And through the continuity of family, he says that he feels the presence of his son, Michael, and his wife, Alani. He says, we are all here in this place, this burning house, five of us making one thing, like one of my pictures. They make their way to a safe room in his house that has its own supply of air that ought to last 10 hours, but the fire is still a danger. He says, if we are not rescued soon, if the fire is not extinguished, we will be baked in here like potatoes. In Addis Ababa, long ago, I walked through the walls of my prison and escaped. If I think about it, surely I will remember how. He also started the chapter with with those exact words. And that's how we end Mm. the chapter. Oh, (laughs) all right. So 
the chapter started with the burning room and then is the burning room the like semi future that we don't know what year no, it is but- or are we still in the memory sans serif? It's 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 memory sans serif. It's it's probably like 2017. Yeah. Okay. It's like not long after. After the witness comes yep. out. I really like that app. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really interesting. Like that's so novel and interesting that I'm surprised it's not a thing. I am would also be surprised. Like feel like it's likely that it is a thing. Yeah. I don't know. But it's not something that I already know about. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's one time walking home from the bus mm-hmm. that I had a racially charged situation uh, of these like guys in a pickup truck said, said like the N word and flipped me off and, and tried to spit at me and they missed. Jesus but fuck. yeah, this was a thing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, but. it's just this is so like, I feel like this is such. Like Barry, Barry Hoon's experience, right? Like he will countenance any amount of this shit being aimed at himself. But when it happens to his granddaughter, that's when he loses his shit. And I feel like right. that, like I was in seventh grade when I first heard of like, you went to like a camp or something and there were kids who were like oh, really yeah. racist towards you. And mm-hmm. my fucking head exploded. I was like, how can you see my best friend as that? Like as 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 nothing but you know this small version of what you see him as. Like this is it just like yeah it was just such inordinate rage that I just like didn't know where it came from or or how to place it. Yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that incident yeah. happened in fifth grade, okay. and it. And that was apparently the last time my school went to uh, no shit. Wow. Um, Yeah. Which like conceptually big picture. Like I appreciate that. (laughs) But like, um, (laughs) (laughs) Santa Barbara is such a bubble and the racism that I end up dealing with is very muted and very few and far between. In in terms of in those times when it does happen in comparison to like, Right. And in terms of the like open bigot racism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My so my main point is when that happened, I told my mom yeah. about it. And she had told me about someone, I believe at UCSB, that is doing something like this walking while black really? app. So they wanted to document the location of where all these racially charged things yeah. happen in hopes of Basically figuring out where these people are yeah, <laughs> and like, you know, places to avoid and that kind yeah. of stuff. My mom asked if I could like write down details of like, basically give her like a full report of mm-hmm. what happened. Unfortunately, it happened on, it happened in a neighborhood, but on a street that's connected to a main sure. street. It was likely just some guys just taking a side street. It yeah. wasn't like they just left their right. house or whatever like that. It was, it was actually, it was up the street from uh, from your place. Really? On Chino? No shit. Oh my God. Yeah. So it didn't happen on Chino, but right around the corner where, from your house, there's that street that goes up and then you can get onto um, Carrillo up at the top of the oh, hill. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? So it happened on that offshoot street that's con- that comes off of the main street down to wow. Chino. okay. Because I fell asleep on the bus while coming home and so <laughs> I got 
I took one bus stop yeah, too late and I've had to walk that down one. that yeah. way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I got off one one bus stop too late, and that's when I had that oh, shit. So it was like I was in a place that I'm not usually yeah. at, and it was a truck coming off of that off the main street down that street. So they it's a street they're probably not usually at. It was very much random one in a million kind of situation. Fuckers. But <laughs> but yeah, so that that happened, and, my, and so my mom put me in contact with someone that's that was trying to do something kind of like this. But it was before the world of like apps and all that. This is like two thousand three. Yeah. You know, we did not have like smartphones and apps. Uh, yeah, and like time. GPS to be able to just like quickly tag something and not have to fill out a full report, etc. Yeah, but yeah. So anyway, that's what I think about. I, it's just like that would be a wild and super useful app. Yeah, I think. It, it should, should exist. exist. Well, you know, go have a renowned painting career. Well, no, no, no. Go have a spiritual experience. Have that fuel a renowned painting right. career. Start a home security company. Come back and do the art for a video game. Make millions of dollars. And then go develop that app. I mean, what's, what's, what's keeping you? Yeah, seriously, man. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like all that sounds like is I just need to go and have a really awesome weekend on cruise <laughs> and tap into a latent ability of paint that I've never hey. had. <laughs> just unlock it, go and buy a bunch of paint. It's totally doable. Yeah. <laughs> I just oh, but I also need a granddaughter to right video game first. <laughs> I need. There, there's a this is a long game <laughs> situation. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. All, All right. right. Chapter seven. I have my I I have my life there plan go. figured out now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. Uh chapter okay. seven. It is titled Get Me To TWO. And this is Serif Chapter, Neath again. Waking up from the memory fragment, repeating sort of the last line of it. Surely I will remember how, like letting it sort of all sink into her head. And and so she remembers it more consciously and less as like a dreamlike, you know, sort of like something that can mm. float away. Let's see, uh, she, you know, takes some notes from the this fragment and connects the dots. So she says, Barry Hun Bekele painted a five-panel picture that was to all intents and purposes the Chamber of Isis, linking the two internal fictions. Anne Bekele's company was called Fire Judges, which ties Hunter directly to Lernrot. The company mainframe was called The Spine. Like Firespine, the name Witness itself pulled from the interrogation. The notional game project that is an unflattering portrait of the Witness and the system also had an alternative alternative name nomon oh yeah colson part one of this chapter colson described witnessed with the code name nomon ah so like when gamecube was project exactly kind yeah of thing. or we was project yeah. revolution like firespine nomon was a sort of demon to athenaeus kyriakos brought a painting of his shark titled with the same word i don't think they established the demon being named nomon in the athenaeus chapter but anyway, in addition to all of these, Nomon is the randomly chosen word that is the name of the case she is investigating. And then she remembers a line from the Athenaeus chapter. And then we come to the East panel, which is me. So mm -hmm. she's starting to see her not only, you know, she's, she's starting to see connections to herself, not just Diana Hunter in 
this whole mess. She asks the witness again how the case got assigned the name Nomon. The witness responds, are you well? Neith repeats the question. <laughs> Inspector, it is 3 a.m. and you have recently suffered a traumatic head injury. You are displaying signs of agitation. Are you well? I'm fine. Answer the question. Do you wish me to call medical assistance? No, I am well. Proceed. Oh my gosh. So is it being sinister here? Is it protecting itself? Or is this just the same thing as the bank freezing your card when you make a strange purchase? <laughs> no, it's not that. How, how is it not, though? Because, okay, well, I guess it depends she's, on... She's, she's doing... Does the, yeah. witness, does the witness see the memories that they're watching also? Yes. That they're experiencing? Yeah. Actually, I... I don't think it does. Uh, I guess... I think it does... But, it shouldn't be able to. This is a great question. It shouldn't be able to, but it it made a connection between Firespine and the Kiriako segment that she didn't make oh. herself. I don't know if that was from notes that she wrote down or if it oh, actually right. like saw it. That's a great question though, because the tech is such that it shouldn't. Right? There's no brain interface to the witness. Right. Yet. Yeah, because this is on my Google Glass. <laughs> There's no, but but that's you know the uh, monitoring bill that is the sort of you know the law that she's voting on right now in the witness or in the system rather is brain interface for or direct brain interface for the witness to people. Yeah, I don't, that's a <laughs> bit too much. <laughs> that that's where I draw my data line. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Because okay, because mainly because I feel like the brain is emotion and incalculable, yeah. whereas actions are pieces of data. That right. You do but how you feel about yeah. those actions is not the kind of data that's going to help for literally anything. Really, you can feel however you want, but if you act differently, it's not going. It's not to, actionable. It, it doesn't in the same feed way. into yeah. my data site. But is that just because you you don't? have those things to use as data points they're not you don't have a system to use those as actionable data and so they are they're well, not useful yeah, like to cause, you because sentiment analysis right exactly sentiment analysis is very much a thing but it's more of a like how do you feel about this not necessarily how are you processing this yeah data, it's it's it if that makes because sense. it's it's trying to see how you'll act in the future based on how you feel now yeah, predictive analytics, it should strictly just be on a action-reaction right. kind of test, not a let's manipulate how they get to the reaction kind but of test. But everything is manipulation, I feel. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends yeah. on how how forward you are with the data that right. you get, I suppose. Oh, man. <laughs> this is... <laughs> This book is trying so hard to make me look like the bad guy. <laughs> Not okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, so so I guess if it's if the if the memory is playing like a yeah. video, then the video has. I guess it might be being processed by the witness to show right. you. And it, it did play as a video during. Hunter's interrogation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So my take is that this is the same thing as the bank 
freezing your card. Like it's, it's acting from what it understands to be her self-interest. The problem is that there's no safeguard for there being the her self-interest and self-protect the witness protecting itself or obscuring itself being the same thing that mm. the system mm. is opaque in that way and that we have to you know it has to be understood how it works when it works why it works etc yeah just the fact that it's presented as this like faceless voice yeah. And they, like, they make it sound sinister. Emotionless as hell. Yeah. Well, voice. It says it says early in this actually that Neith herself decided, like early in the book, Neith herself decided to have the emotion, the voice given with zero, like as mute affect and emotion as possible, because anything else would sound mm-hmm. like somebody telling you what to do. And this this <laughs> okay. it, it, it's a similar thing. Like apparently, it happens a lot in like car assistance or something like or voice assistance people will prefer something that sounds more robotic because it's they you can't come across a a natural sounding voice that doesn't sound like like a jackass (laughs) yeah interesting okay which is also interesting because it means you know this whole thing of like we trust this quote unquote impartiality more, or we understand this machine to be impartial in a way we wouldn't understand humans to be. Anyway, the witness explains again that the names are assigned randomly with some selection involved to appropriate, uh, to avoid inappropriate words like codename fart or something actually uses that as an example. Also avoid words that are difficult to pronounce or scientific jargon Quote here, she almost laughs. The machine is so affectless as to appear droll. If I rejected Nomon right now and asked for a new random term, what would I get? As of this moment, another three tier or a tier three word, Richercar, spelled R-I-C-E-R-C-A-R, a term used in the 17th century musical scoring to denote a fugue of the sort not generally appreciated purely for its tonal qualities, but rather by those with a close understanding of the cultural significance of what was known contemporarily as learned counterpoint for its, artifi- for its artifice and deft accomplishment. Involuted puzzles were currently were frequently included within the music. In one famous case, the composer J.S. Bach, titled A Richercar Regis, Issue cantio et reliqua canonica arte resoluta, which means the theme given by the king's command with additions resolved according to the canonic style, but is obviously a self-describing acrostic. Within the work were several biblical references injuncting the listener to seek, the original meaning of ricercare being to seek. This quest was a preconditioning of discovering the references. This raises a tangential point. The modern period's obsession with art that comments upon its own artificiality and undermines its inherent gravitas by commentary is itself undermined by that inheritance. So the book is doing this right now. Also implicit is an early form of the deep blue question. If one seeks with sufficient ingenuity in any sample, one can create a cryptographic rationale for any output text. Therefore, in any investigation, the key problem is not how to begin, but where to stop. Would you like to change the name? She considers and then says no. Let it stay to remind her to be suspicious. Hunter and Lernrot, though, that connection, at least, is established. She decides to go back to Hunter's house and has the witness send some constables. It says... 
But first, there's something else, something important yet to come. She can feel it as a compelling soreness in her mind, like the loosening of a first tooth. The segment is unfinished. That's the end of the chapter, and it goes back to another serif font. Another serif font? uh, Sorry, another sans serif font. Anything you want to discuss about that chapter before we finish it on out? I like the timing of that chapter. Because, like, this last chapter was thick. (laughs) yeah so it was kind of cool to have a character within the book kind of review the connections of the like six chapters that we've had totally because like we've had what four different timelines (laughs) and like eight different named characters all with very specific oh wait what is what on like yeah on like name drops or titles or yeah common references and all that yeah yeah Someone just be like, hey, by the way, this, that, and the other, this checks out, that checks out, that checks out. Totally. Yeah, so it was, it was fun. I liked it. Yeah. And characters who, another thing, characters who seem to fulfill, like, the same or similar roles in different chapters, you know? Like, you've got the Megalos, and then you've got Father Fishy. I guess they're kind of different. I don't know. Or the the Nomon demon. Like, I don't know. You You kind of see these characters fulfilling similar roles in different situations so now we are on to chapter chapter eight which is titled interrogation humor like i said it's sans serif but this time it's diana herself mid-interrogation so we pushed through what um oliver was called the shaharazad blockade and just like he predicted you work through it and you see some glimpse of the original mind Mid-interrogation, she's aware and she's thinking to herself. This is a long metaphor that has relevance later, so I'm going to read it. She says, I read once that the first time they put an escapologist in a tank of water, he or she will have one of two reactions, and which one determines the course of their life. The first sort of escapologist is an ordinary person who has come to the trade organically by whatever curious sequence of opportunity and happenstance, and that sort will panic. There is very little that is more appallingly unnatural or frightening than being lowered, bound, into a confined space containing an atmosphere you cannot breathe. It doesn't matter how much preparation you may have done. At the moment your elbows hit the perspex, the moment you hear the dull noise they make as the sound is transmitted not through a gas but through liquid, that's the moment you understand your own mortality in a way you never have before and you lose control. A training crew will know that and they'll wait for the moment and then get you out and talk you down and then you can try again or not. Some people just never go back in the tank. They do other illusions. They shift their focus. A pair of handcuffs, a few feathers, a risque joke, and then some close-up magic and narrative tricks. Thanks very much and good night. Some will get right back in and they master their fear and they go on to be as good as their skill allows. These last are more compelling to watch. The second sort of escapologist is the sort that doesn't panic. They touch the water and relax, as if just now realizing where they truly want to be. They never feel afraid, even when perhaps they should. When they do escape, they wait just a moment below the surface of the water, saying goodbye. This sort of escapologist tends not to be very successful commercially because their their contentedness in the tank disturbs the audience. The whole premise of escapology as a show is that death is something to be scared of, and the rush you get from watching it is about survival and life. There's a small but noticeable statistic hike in pregnancies after a high-profile escapology act comes to town. 
The second sort of escapologist doesn't provide that rush. Instead, he or she invites a placid contemplation of mortality that is nowhere on the razzle-dazzle shopping list and and which will certainly not get you laid. Audiences come out of the theater sober and chilled, and a little while later they make life changes and spend more time with the people they love. It doesn't sell. Before the interrogation begins, it is clear that I am the first sort of escapologist. The anesthesia communicates itself to me not as rest or a moment of calm, but as the encroachment into my living experience of simple biological ending. I buck against the restraints unevenly because my arm has already lost function, and briefly because the cold is so very, very quick to spread. But then, when I've lost the battle and I'm alone with the absence of my senses, and everything that is, is just my thoughts, it turns out I'm the second sort of escapologist after all. So she's going through, kind of wandering through her mind and thinking, thinking about the political situation and how she ended up in interrogation. And she said, cannot imagine what they expect to find. Some torrid, torrid late romance with a charismatic terrorist, perhaps. Well, they can whistle for it. No one beats the machine, not in the end. People have tried and failed. Psychologists, psychometricians, psychopaths, mentalists and hypnotists, experts in deception, spies and spy masters, even schizophrenics and paranoid. The only person who came close was a madwoman. That was what the paperwork said. A mind turned inward upon itself, bouncing off its interior walls. Too much information in too wild a flow between the hemispheres of the brain. Radical intervention was prescribed, and in the end she was wide open to the machine, as if it had sliced her head into pages and turned the leaves on her spine. She was put back into the world afterwards with a proper right-thinking brain, and she had to make a completely new life as a new person. Not one of her previous relationships survived the compulsory healing. How could they? None of them made any sense now that she was ordinary. Not that she was ordinary. She was just differently strange. Poor, pale Anna was ripped apart. I liked her. Of all the things, I wish that hadn't happened. That's a passage worth remembering. Have we heard Anna's name before? Oh, I guess it was Annie. That's the Ethiopian. Oh, yeah. No, Anna, if she hasn't come up yet, Anna Magdalena, she... uh, Yeah, I guess not. Okay. Ah, okay. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) I think... Tubman might have suggested something about a previous interrogation mm-hmm. gone wrong. Tubman being her, yeah. her Watson friend, and that it happened with a woman who had a, a some sort of brain condition going on with his spheres didn't talk to each other correctly. She says, once you're in the chamber, there are no walls you can build that are high enough to keep the machine out. If necessary, it becomes your substrate, carries the burden of beating your heart and filling your lungs. The machine will kill you and keep you alive while it fixes you. That's the way it is. Unless. But there is no unless. The machine cannot be beaten from within. Still, for the sake of argument, what if I think it can? What if I have cobbled together in my odd little list of skills and built a rickety ad hoc notion, the sort of plan that no one could foresee because you'd have to be desperate to come up with it and insane to believe it could be done? It's absurd to consider. The witness is not some cartoonish layer of wickedness with a big red button on a pedestal marked do not push. It is a network, infinitely nested and protected, millions of lines of code resting on millions of lines of code. The ecosystem of interrogation and surveillance almost perfectly adapted to absorb what is wanted and keep out what is not. There is no way anyone could devise a defense any more than you can wave off an army or a neutron bomb. But what if I have? then I'm either a lunatic or an idiot. 
Perhaps when they're finished with me, they'll be kind enough to adjust my self-image a little so I can pick dragons small enough for me to slay. No one beats the machine, they say. But what they mean is, no one ever has. <laughs> There's a little quote when she's musing on privacy and rights that I thought was interesting. The EU had privacy as a baseline right once, but the tech all came from America and, quote, the American perception is that free speech was infinitely more important than privacy in every case. So she mentions that she's steganographically hidden her real self across a lot of chaotic thoughts. She says, neural practice aside, the ability to be more than one thing at one time means I can hide across my brain, arranged as it were at right angles to the rest of me. Huh? No man, uh, like the metal at yeah. right angle at, at right angle. Yeah. In essence, I'm steganographically hidden in my own thoughts. I've torn myself apart in order to remain whole. Uh, if they want to know, eh, if they want to know what I know, they'll have to put me back together first. And she says, uh, wait a minute though. Let me ask you candidly whether that last bit still sounds like me, like a woman who lives in a house without machines and teaches local children about card indexing to vex the authorities, like a librarian engaged in a revolution of one. The way I think of myself, this me here now, this fragment, I generally spend my time telling stories to five-year-olds. I don't do manifestos. I'm just ornery. I definitely don't do logic puzzles or talk about escapologists or modes of data oculation or uh, occultation. Or perhaps that's normal. It's not inconceivable that making up a secret persona is a psychological defense mechanism, the way we deal with the helplessness of an interrogation determined to uncover truths that do not exist. So perhaps I really am an ordinary woman in a coma, dreaming I'm a remarkable woman, somehow fighting the man. Just ordinary me. Ordinary. Oh, I've forgotten my name. Oh, no. Yeah. And she goes on that for a little bit, kind of goes through the experience of, is this sensory deprivation, cognitive distancing brought on by the drugs? I might be going mad. I'll try not to. <laughs> if you think I'm going mad, put your hands over your eyes and start making noises like a chicken. See that? Interrogation humor. So her interrogators are frustrated because they can't find the real her, just Constantine, Athenaeus, and Berihun. She calls those characters ghost soldiers buried in my brain, trying to keep the real me alive. One of the interrogations says it's a rare form of dissociative identity disorder, but quote, a part of me believes it is someone else, several someones in fact, and these others have a life inside me that is neurologically real. Constantine Kyriakos actually exists as a separate person in my brain. Athenaeus, if she could be transplanted into another head, would flourish and grow. Bekele's talent might be real. One of the interrogators says that I must have done a lot of research, at least about Kyriakos, because there actually was a fellow by that name, and nothing they've found in my mind has yet proven to be inaccurate, although history does not record the business of the shark obsession. So not real life, real person, but in Diana Hunter's world, real person. Right, because that happened so long ago that it doesn't make a whole yeah. lot of sense that this would be an actual memory memory of someone that she like met. I mean, we don't really know what's going on, right? Yeah. And then another character enters the in interrogation chamber. He's described as intelligent with a soft voice. He says that her resistance is very much more interesting and more complex than an ordinary dissociative state, even a layered one. He thinks that my condition has been engineered, even constructed in situ, quite painstakingly. He describes it as a Scheherazade gambit or a recursive narrative firewall. Then he smiles. Hello in there, he says directly to me. 
this is very impressive. And she does not like him one bit. She likes him even less than the misogynist interrogators. And this new character who comes in supposes that each that parts of each character in these sub-narratives and these fragments resonate so well because they resonate with her own life. Like they they seem their memories seem so real and not just a story because parts of their lives resonate with parts of Diana's own. And this character supposes that a counter-narrative could put the pieces back together and discard the unnecessary fragments. If you remember, a counter-narrative is exactly what Oliver Smith recommended that Neith Neith do as well. And this character who walked in was described as immediately very unlikable person, (laughs) much like Oliver Smith. And that's the end of the chapter. Damn it. So next week's chapter is Seraph again, and it's titled Ghost Books. So that's exciting. So we get introduced to Neith, and she gets brought on to investigate the death of, I keep on wanting to call her Diana Hunter. Diana. Diana Hunter. And in searching Diana Hunter's memories, we go across these three chapters seemingly initially unrelated right of three different time periods of like eight other characters yeah but focusing on like kyriakos barry hoon and athenaeus and athenaeus and then we get to this chapter and we find out that diana is trying to hide her true identity and disassociate herself within her memories yeah. And it's kind of implied that these three characters seem to be made up or she identifies them as the like guardians of her like identity. Yeah. Or their aspects of herself or something. But yeah. within, you know, this world, Kyriakos was a real person and all of the research right. lines up. And and then after Neith wades through all three fragments she finds that's when uh, she finds a glimpse of diana herself yeah wow okay so this is kind of presented as like this is our phase one intro to the book like now the book can start kind of a thing yeah yeah this was gotten to diana now (laughs) exactly yeah we've kind of we've kind of hit the end of the first act depending on how you want to the first act might last one or two more chapters, but it's more or less it's it's coming into seems like it's coming into focus. This is like the episode four of a lot of anime. <laughs> 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 like the first the first few episodes of a lot of anime, they introduce the concepts or the characters that we're gonna be seeing throughout the show. Yeah. And then once they do that, then by like episode four or five or six, they have the like, and here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the story. This is what that feels like. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm really excited for the next two chapters. I feel like we should try to reach out to uh to Nips and coax him <laughs> to pop in on one of these. Yeah, definitely. I he's our our editor Nipuna has been making noises like he has thoughts. Yeah, and I want to hear these thoughts. He's being so coy. He's like, I'm not the podcasting type. Get over yourself. You think (laughs) we are? Come on. Oh man.
Oh boy. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah. Well, time to uh, eat some dinner and uh, say hi to our significant others before we go off to record another podcast. I know. Oh my gosh. What a busy day. Yeah, we've got a uh, guest appearance on Superhero Ethics coming up that we're recording shortly, so be on the lookout for that. We'll hopefully come out after hours so that this serves as a good plug. Uh, But (laughs) in either case, when you hear this, it should be already released or close to it and keep your eye out. Yeah. Anything else you want to say to good people of the internet before we sign on off? I think that'll do it. Let's see. Next week, I've got Eternals. I have Marvel Zombies Resurrection, uh, awesome. which I cool. think I'm curious about. The Marvel Zombies universe is so interesting. <laughs> I've got Shang-Chi. He finally has a solo title. First time in over 40 years that Holy he has crap. a solo title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably because of the movie, but <laughs> right. it doesn't matter. Give me a good story. <laughs> Absolutely. And then if I can get to it, there's Werewolf by Night. Huh. It's an odd character to give a title to. Yeah, so the guy, so Werewolf by Night, his name is... Um, <laughs> this is one of the dumbest comics names of all time. His name is Jack Russell. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so bad. He, like Shang-Chi, has not had a solo title in... Very, very many years. So the title of the book is called New Wolf Rising. Thank goodness it's a one shot. <laughs> and looks like he's going up against Red Wolf. Red Wolf is a... Um, is that the Native American character? Native American that got introduced in Battle World in uh, the Secret Wars storyline. Right. And he got brought over to 616 at the end of that. And he spent some time with Hawkeye as the, um, oh gosh, what was that storyline called? Uh, Occupy Avengers. Oh, okay. And they're going around just kind of traveling the U.S. looking for small time baddies to deal with. And sure. then, uh, but yeah, so Red Wolf uh, hasn't really been seen since then. He was somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, <laughs> and so he... Looks like he's he's making a return in Werewolf by Night. Sweet. I can wait, but I'll <laughs> get there. I'll get there soon. <laughs> Looking forward to next week. And the next week we're going to do uh, next big chapter for Nomon. Yeah, yeah. The next one is uh, is a real meal. Excellent. It's uh, the, the longest. Well, I guess the first chapter was was long, but we haven't had a long Neath chapter in a while. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right, then. Well, with that, I guess we should put the outro music here. Boom. And uh, I will see you shortly. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to you soon, man. Take care. All right. Good job. Peace.